Secondary Buyers in this Successful Association today. My guest is Mark Engel, who has participated in more than 400 board meetings and currently serves on five boards of directors. This translates to his in-depth knowledge of board membership and governance. He is a principal with Association Management Center in their governance consulting practice and has been working closely with Will Brown at Texas A&M University to publish research findings on the board selection process for ASAE Foundation. Through his hard work and dedication, Mark earned the Samuel Shapiro Award for Outstanding CEO at the Association Forum of Chicagoland and was inducted into the Chicago Area Entrepreneurship Hall of Fame and the Metal Construction Hall of Fame. And he is also my co-facilitator for ASAE's Exceptional Boards. And it has been my pleasure to work with him and watch him at work as he adds to governance knowledge in the association arena. So Mark, I'm delighted to have you here today. Well, it's always a pleasure to be, be with you and team up with you, Mary. Thank you. So you wrote Recruit the Right Board based on your research with William Brown. And I've been recommending the book to clients because it is chock full of thought-provoking ideas around board member recruitment and selection. What two or three things most surprised you as a result of your research that you didn't anticipate? You know, Mary, I've been in this space for 37 years and, and you think you've seen not everything, but most everything. And this research was really the most enlightening um, in my career, frankly. It was really neat to um, uh, investigate what are uh, interesting and leading practices in board composition these days. And just a couple of the high-level ones. I was so encouraged to see that, um, that we're not leaving board composition to chance anymore. And we can investigate that a little bit further here. But, um, and then also that the... Um, age and career stage uh, impacts how directors view board composition, which I thought was also pretty interesting. Many of how, how old you are, how long you've been in this career stage is a big indicator of how you view board composition, particularly relative to geography versus competencies. And then the third one is uh, really an interest in um, focusing on a market mindset and strategy as key competencies in the boardroom instead of longevity, for instance. And I think that's been a change. Uh, you know, for, for those of us who have been in the association space for uh, a long time, it, I think you said a key word, and that is we're not leaving it to chance anymore. And we're getting more intentional and deliberate about the competencies that need to be in the boardroom. And I think some of that is just coming because the environment is so challenging for associations. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, there are a lot of dynamics, you know, in, in not only just the COVID environment, but we also have less patience these days. And longevity used to be rewarded with leadership opportunities. And that's really no longer the case we're seeing in some of the leading practices. So it's not about longevity. It's about competency and balance in the boardrooms. Those are different constructs, and that is encouraging. I agree that it's encouraging for, for sure. And uh, I want to uh, touch on something that you wrote in the book that, uh, that kind of surprised me but didn't surprise me. Uh, in the book, you and Brown wrote, frequently during this study, researchers heard that far too many board members were not up to the task of governing 21st century associations. This is an uncomfortable truth for many organizations, end quote. 
I know this question oversimplifies the nominations process, but if you worked for an association for which this was true, what would you focus on as your first steps to change the reality that some of your board members might not be up to the task at hand? Well, you know, there are structural impediments in how the governance model is set within the bylaws, for instance. Those can be difficult to change, but so, so often we forego the easier changes such as we can impact competency, even if we can't uh, determine who will be on the slate, for instance, or how they're elected, we can uh, impact competency and balance. Say we're looking for a few good people in leadership, and this is the construct of what they look like. Here are the competencies we really need to inform strategy for the organization. And here are some of the demographic elements that are critical too. And demographics used to be you know, a consideration for race, ethnicity, and gender, and particularly gender in our space. And what we're finding is uh, it's more than that. It's, it's about career stage and practice setting, professional setting and type, you know, and, and it makes sure we have a good composite of what that looks like at the board table to really impact strategy for the organization. What does that look like? How is it different? And do we have to change the entire bylaws and methodology to be able to impact that? And the short answer is no. You know, the long answer is to do it well for the benefit of the organization, likely, but we can impact change more quickly than structural. When I listen to you talk about that, it sounds to me like recruitment is getting more complex than it used to be. Absolutely. There's a greater appreciation for leadership development than simply a nominating function. You know, nominating was static. You know, we have three openings. We need to get three or six or how many candidates. And today it's really about leadership development saying we need to identify and give opportunities to emerging leaders and to people to really establish their credentials for leadership and what that looks like. And by the way, if we couple that with the competencies we're seeking, then we can make quality decisions on comprising our leadership team. We better take that seriously today because as you know, and you and I talk about this all the time, competition in our space is more fierce than it has ever been. And if we don't have that market mindset, the strategy, cognition in the boardroom, then we are going to be an also-ran, and that could likely put us out of business. And those words, out of business, have uh, have even more meaning now as we look at a post-pandemic environment. Uh, for, for many organizations, the pandemic has accelerated trends that were already happening. Uh, if, if there's a silver lining, it has also provided a tailwind, and it has uh, created a sense of urgency that has helped us move faster in in some ways. But when you talk about competencies, it, that's complicated in and of itself because identifying them and naming them, uh, addressing soft skills, looking at who maybe already has what, what's needed rather than the training aspect of it. There's a lot to consider here. What's the role of onboarding? So let's say we've gone through the nominations process and we have a great group of incoming leaders, one of the things that I'm pleased to see is that we're doing more onboarding, but can you talk a little bit about what you learned about that in your research? Sure. We aren't assuming that people know how to be a good board member. And so, and, and you know, Mary, you also find that high-performing boards want to be better. They want board development. They realize they don't know it all. And, you know, we throw these board members into a context 
where they might have come out of some dysfunctional leadership opportunities, whether it's a you know, PTA organization or a school board that they might have visited a board meeting or a church board or something like that. And they think, well, I've served on a board. Our board is different in the association space. It really is. The way we come together and make decisions is very different. We, we call it episodic engagement at the board level. You know, they're not living it daily like the staff is while they're hopefully engaged properly, at least in the profession or the trade that they're representing, they don't understand how we make decisions in our space. And it is very different getting consensus and the decision-making capacity when you're a unit of one at the board level. How does that work is very different in our space than it is back in their practice setting. We need to be cognizant of that. And what I'm hearing you say is that onboarding is not a one and done but that a high-performing board is continually investing in learning how to be better, not just better individually, but better together. And I think that's part of the key. Yeah. You know, there's, there's the fiduciary responsibility that, that the average board member doesn't really know what they are and how they're going to be impacted with that in our space. Then there's the strategy setting of what are they trying to see, uh, achieve as an organization, and then there's the cultural elements of how we get work done, whether it's in the board dynamics of how we treat each other or the board staff partnership. You know, what's that cultural element, which you and I know is different with every board and even the same board year over year because the board members change. So it's very different. And I think that's part of the challenge, too, is that the board members change. And so you could have a highly functioning board and that turnover then can disrupt or interrupt what was well set and and that can that can be a problem you know from from year to year as, as we change who our leaders are and that's why onboarding i think is is so important let's talk about an example of an association that has changed how they identify and recruit board members and how they've benefited as a result well we have a couple of examples of low hanging fruit and then significant overhaul change and, uh, you know, the, the latter example is about an organization that's in the nursing um, area, and uh, they had to get approval from their members to change the bylaws um, on board composition. You know, they found that on average, 7 to 10% of the members vote, which means most of them really aren't engaged or concerned with governance. So why are we letting them make a competitive decision on who leads the organization? That doesn't make sense in today's environment. You know, and what, what are those dynamics and how do they come together? And, and being cognizant of what are those competencies we need. You, you mentioned earlier the, the soft skills of how we work together, the hard skills of what do we know, and then the strategy skills of and what's important to the organization. Where should we be looking up and out to be impacting our future? Those, all those dynamics change dramatically. And have, if we haven't changed our system in looking at that, then we're likely comprising the wrong leadership team to advance it for strategy purposes for the organization. So as I mentioned earlier, you and I lead exceptional boards, one of the American Society of Association Executives Governance Programs, and we focus on best practices and building a strong relationship between the CEO and volunteer board chair. And that means that you and I have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we've heard some stories that are hair-raising. And we've also heard some stories, which, which I really appreciate, the passionate volunteers that have that just pour their heart and soul into making not only the organization better, but the future of the 
trade or profession that they represent better. But what's been the most satisfying part of our work together on exceptional boards for you? I, I would say that um, the appreciation for the association profession is is typically well embraced at exceptional boards. And, you know, we, we you and I get to share what we see as leading practices out there, whether it's researched or, or, or viewed within the board space that you and I visit all the time. Um, and we respect for a good CEO. What do they know and how do they approach it? And so what comes out of that often is an appreciation for this volunteer leadership to say, you know, we need to make our decisions differently and we need to be cognizant of and who is making those decisions. So it's kind of the how we're making the decision and the who in making those decisions and really getting them to focus more on strategy and alignment around those, those key principles and examining that differently. But it's always fun to, to walk out of that meeting and, 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 you know, what is it? Maybe 20% say, boy, we've got it really pretty good when we hear about the problem in the room. And then there's a good 40% that say, and we've got some major dysfunction. We need to turn around. Our members mm-hmm. deserve better. You know, and then the other ones are just kind of in the middle saying, oh, we do have some things to approve, of course. I love it when we hear year over year when a group has attended and they've gone home and they've actually made some of the changes uh, that they decided to make at the meeting. And so it feels like we're helping organizations evolve. Oh, boy. You know, at, at all spectrums, the highest performing to the lowest performing, they all walk away with, with tools and communication tips and elements to improve not only the board staff partnership, but the way that they are approaching opportunities and assessing threats within their enterprise. And that, that you know, they leave energy energized. That's pretty exciting. I don't, you and I leave energized just because of the engagement with the people and what we're seeing happening and transpiring in the room. It's, it's very exciting, vital. And, and I think it's exciting too, to help equip people and give them common language. So as they're working together, they uh, they really understand the value of having each other's back and no surprises and planning ahead. Uh, and and I, I like what you just said a couple minutes ago, and that is our association deserves better than this. Uh, association does deserve the very best. The members deserve the very best. And so I think any time we can spend solidifying and creating sustainability for an organization in my book is time well spent for sure. Uh, one of the downsides that we've seen, though, of, of recent events is we've seen an increase in incivility in the boardroom. What do you attribute this to, and what are some techniques to stop it? I know this is an area that, that you're interested in. You, you know, this is such an interesting topic, and, and we have seen it creeping into the boardroom. In fact, we like to say, if you haven't experienced it yet, it's a matter of time before you have civility issues within your leadership team. Um, you know, I think in, in our culture today, there's this element around individualism. It's kind of in. And yet when we look at the boards, it's collectivism that dictates mm. decision-making in our space. And so they, they conflict with each other, you know, and, and heaven forbid we get somebody who runs for the board or, or more heaven forbid for an office and says, this is my agenda. You know, and when we look at it, the agenda for any board member, and particularly the chief volunteer, is let's pursue the strategy we have agreed to and resource it properly instead of this agendaism. So it's just it's amazing to me how the impact of culture in the boardroom 
impacts decision making. And that, as you mentioned earlier, Will Brown out of Texas A&M, a tremendous amount of board performance research in the nonprofit space. And that's the number two element is board culture. How do we treat each other? How do we respect each other? And that's not only board board with board, but board with staff. And don't don't allow that cultural element of incivility to creep in to push individualism over what we know in our space is collectivism in making those decisions. Would you say that having agreements for how board and staff interact, and you know, in terms of respecting each other when there is a disagreement, when there's conflict, uh, is that one way to go? How, how to address it before it happens? Yeah. You know, we're doing therapy sessions with boards um, on how do we treat each other and spending time on values. Now, you know, for a long time in our space, we've spent organizational value time. What are our values of an organization, our core values? And now we're saying, all right, we better make sure we safeguard the culture within our board space in this leadership team. What does that look like? How do we treat each other? What are the operating principles for engagement? You know, and, and sometimes that, that is definitely civility driven. And sometimes it's just the opportunity to allow certain people to get a word in edgewise mm-hmm. or to think before they speak. You know, those, those elements are taking on bigger meaning in the boardroom. And especially as, you know, you and I've seen the data, and this is your book, you know, you and Harrison have really preached to the choir about downsizing the size of the board. And that's the data we're seeing out of board source and ASAE. Boards are slowly getting smaller. And that takes on a new meaning for for this whole um, uh, discussion that we're having. How do we treat each other? Well, and one of the things that I learned from you as co-facilitator on exceptional boards is the importance of trust in the boardroom. If, uh, you know, I knew it intuitively, of course, but when we think about how you build that trust, it's very hard to build it if you've got a board of 40, 60, 80 or a hundred as some associations have. And so I think as our challenges in the environment have gotten stronger, the importance of being able to trust each other in the boardroom has gotten even more important. Yeah, there's two elements to trust. First, you have to have the level of competence, of course, and then you have to have that level of relationship, the caring, the personal caring element of it. How do you do that with a large board? You know, I'm on, you mentioned five boards and one of them has five members. And the ability to trust and have candor, respectful dialogue in the boardroom is light years different than the largest board I'm not on anymore, but was 35 people. You didn't even know some of the people's names, you know, and and while you want to assume good intent walking into the board space, you know, there comes a time when you're saying, now, why is he saying this instead of what is he saying? And that just undermines that element of trust, which is so critical in developing culture and decision making in the boardroom. And if you have trust in the boardroom, you're less likely to have instability. So I think they are closely related. Um, let's talk executive sessions, because these are often misused by associations. You and I believe that the only two times there should be one held without the CEO is that when there uh, is an, uh, uh, an audit report being made or when an annual evaluation is being made. But we see it happen a lot where the whole staff is asked to leave the room. Would you speak to this? Yes. In fact, uh, more than speak, we wrote a paper with one of our favorite lawyers about uh, executive sessions in this space. Part of it was driven by, I was at a board meeting and um, uh, uh, a board member piped up immediately in establishing the agenda for the board meeting, which by the way, I don't know why they had to do that 
anyways, it was already pre-printed, and said, you know, it's uh, board sources says it's best practice to have an executive session at every board meeting. I'm like, hmm, at the time, I'm like, I had never heard of that from board source before. Well, it comes to find out they define the executive session two ways, one with the CEO, one without the CEO. So having an executive session with the CEO is very productive. Having an executive session without the CEO, as you said, just when it's about the CEO, the review with the CPA audit, and then occasionally you've experienced it when it's a board member's behavior that needs to be addressed. But even at that time, I encourage the, the CEO to be in the room, maybe be sitting in the wings, but to have an understanding of what's going on, being very informed of that without being necessarily directly engaged. Um, so yeah, executive sessions are inappropriate because they undermine that element of that trusting relationship between the board and the, and the CEO, and you can't afford that. So for those associations that do have it at every meeting with the CEO included, what kinds of things might they be talking about? You know, I, I've seen what's keeping you up at night. What are our challenges? And sometimes it's how are you feeling about your staff? Now, that's not necessarily an appropriate discussion. You know, if you're on a board of five people, you can have that kind of a discussion. But if you're on a board of 15 to 20 people, then you're going to lose the trust of your staff by having those types of discussions. So I think you need to be mindful of those relationships and and really what's going on. But what's keeping you up at night is not a bad question to be asking your CEO because their lens is different than the board members. It's important to know that. Absolutely. But I, I, would, encourage and I, think, that, I would encourage that maybe annually, not at every board meeting. I would agree. I would agree. I think that that tends to be a little much and it maybe is not using the executive session in the way that it really can best be used. So, uh, Mark, you know that I could talk to you all afternoon, but last question. Uh, the pandemic has added stress to an environment that was already challenging for many associations, as we've referred to in this podcast today. What have you noticed about the organizations that are weathering this difficult season well? So I, I think one of the common threads I've seen, we, you know, we interviewed a lot of CEOs um, that we consider to be high performing um, shortly after the uh, pandemic started and so on. But um, I would say there's been a much greater reliance and respect for the talent of a good CEO in this environment. And that's because they're really market issues and strategy discussions and the appreciation for that role in the CEO has definitely magnified in a, in a consequential way. Um, so that's that's an excellent thing. The other thing um, we learned too, and found out, you know, forgiveness and permission are kind of opposite extremes, right? And that we ask boards to make decisions that they don't need to be engaged in. It was interesting. I did a couple of interviews with our friendly lawyers in this community. So what decisions does the board have to make? Very, very few. Which means you can empower leadership teams, whether it's officers or or the executive committee, or frankly, just give that authority to the CEO to make decisions and keep the board informed as opposed to a part of the decision-making apparatus. Really interesting construct. We ask them to make too many decisions too often. Do you find that, that boards are surprised when they hear that? I think so. But, and, you know, a lot of that's frankly on us as association CEOs. You know, I'm a former one, but... Um, um, we do ask the board to engage in a lot of decisions. You know, ask them to engage in strategy discussions, resource allocation, but not all the steps along the way. And I think that the, the, the COVID environment of having to make major changes and 
undo things and be very conscious of communication strategies and so on. So this is a business that we're running and you as the CEO have the best business skills in the room with few exceptions. And so the appreciation for that, I think has gone considerably in the favor of the association profession. Let's build on that instead of go back to business as normal, frankly. Oh, that is a great place to, to wrap up here, Mark. I have been saying it, we're not going back. And anytime uh, anybody, here's anybody within an association, board or staff, use the word go back, I think we should flip that. And it should be developing a go forward strategy because it is, uh, we would have missed an opportunity to further our mission and our vision if we go back instead of going forward. So, Mark, thank you for being my guest today. Oh, it's a privilege, and this is the space you live in, Mary. You're so talented in this, so I appreciate always working with you. So thank you. I'm Mary Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. 